Chapter 23 Brett Vincy, we've seen, had a debt on his mind, and though no such immaterial burthen could depress that buoyant-hearted young gentleman for many hours together, there were circumstances connected with this debt which made the thought of it unusually importunate. The creditor was Mr. Bainbridge, a horse-dealer of the neighborhood, whose company was much sought in Middlemarch by young men understood to be addicted to pleasure. During the vacations, Fred had naturally required more amusements than he had ready money for. Mr. Bainbridge had been accommodating enough not only to trust him for the hire of horses and the accidental expense of ruining a fine hunter, but also to make a small advance by which he might be able to meet some losses at billiards. The total debt was 160 pounds. Bainbridge was in no alarm about his money, being sure that young Vincy had backers, but he required something to show for it and Fred had at first given a bill with his own signature. Three months later, he had renewed this bill with the signature of Caleb Garth. On both occasions, Fred had felt confident that he should meet the bill himself, having ample funds at disposal in his own hopefulness. You will hardly demand that this confidence should be a basis in external facts. Such confidence, we know, is something less coarse and materialistic. It is a comfortable disposition leading us to expect the wisdom of providence or the folly of our friends, the mysteries of luck or the still greater mystery of our high individual value in the universe will bring about agreeable issues such as consistent with our good taste in costume and our general preference for the best style of thing. Fred felt sure that he should have a present from his uncle, that he should have a run of luck, that by dint of swapping he should gradually metamorphose a horse worth 40 pounds into a horse that would fetch a hundred at any moment, judgment being always equivalent to an unspecified sum in hard cash. And in any case, even supposing negations which only a morbid distrust could imagine, Fred had always, at that time, his father's pocket as a last resource, so that his assets of hopefulness had a sort of gorgeous superfluity about them. Of what might be the capacity of his father's pocket, Fred had only a vague notion. Was not trade elastic? And would not the deficiencies of one year be made up for by the surplus of another? The Vincys lived in an easy, profuse way, not with any new ostentation, but according to the family habits and traditions, so that the children had no standard of economy and the elder ones retained some of their infantine notion that their father might pay for anything if he would. Mr. Vincy himself had expensive Middlemarch habits, spent money on coursing, on his cellar, and on dinner-giving, while Mama had those running accounts with tradespeople, which give a cheerful sense of getting everything one wants without any question of payment. But it was in the nature of fathers, Fred knew, to bully one about expenses. There was always a little storm over his extravagance if he had to disclose a debt, and Fred disliked bad weather within doors. He was too filial to be disrespectful to his father, and he bore the thunder with the certainty that it was transient. But in the meantime, it was disagreeable to see his mother cry and also to be obliged to look sulky instead of having fun. For Fred was so good-tempered that if he looked glum under scolding, it was chiefly for propriety's sake. The easier course, plainly, was to renew the bill with the friend's signature. Why not? With the superfluous securities of hope at his command, there was no reason why he should not have increased other people's liabilities to any extent but for the fact that men whose names were good for anything were usually pessimists, indisposed to believe that the universal order of things would necessarily be agreeable to an agreeable young gentleman. With a favor to ask we review our list of friends, do justice to their more amiable qualities, 
forgive their little offenses, and concerning each in turn, try to arrive at the conclusion that he will be eager to oblige us, our own eagerness to be obliged being as communicable as other warmth. Still, there is always a certain number who are dismissed as but moderately eager until the others have refused. And it happened that Fred checked off all his friends but one, on the ground that applying to them would be disagreeable. Being implicitly convinced that he at least, whatever might be maintained about mankind generally, had a right to be free from anything disagreeable. That he should ever fall into a thoroughly unpleasant position, where trousers shrunk with washing, eat cold mutton, have to walk for want of a horse, or to duck under in any sort of way, was an absurdity irreconcilable with those cheerful intuitions implanted in him by nature. And Fred winced under the idea of being looked down upon as wanting funds for small debt. Thus it came to pass that the friend whom he chose to apply to was at once the poorest and the kindest, namely, Caleb Garth. The Garths were very fond of Fred, as he was one of them. For when he and Rosamond were little ones and the Garths were better off, the slight connection between the two families through Mr. Featherstone's double marriage, the first to Mr. Garth's sister and the second to Mrs. Vincey's, had led to an acquaintance which was carried on between the children rather than the parents. The children drank tea together out of their tiny teacups and spent whole days together in play. Mary was a little hoyden, and Fred, at six years old, thought her the nicest girl in the world, making her his wife with a brass ring which he had cut from an umbrella. Through all the stages of his education, he had kept his affection for the Garths, and his habit of going to their house as a second home, though any intercourse between them and the elders of this family had long ceased. Even when Caleb Garth was prosperous, the Vincys were on condescending terms with him and his wife, for there were nice distinctions of rank in Middlemarch, and though old manufacturers could not any more than dukes be connected with none but equals, they were conscious of an inherent social superiority which was defined with great nicety in practice, though hardly expressible theoretically. Since then, Mr. Garth had failed in the building business, which he had unfortunately added to his other avocations of surveyor, valuer, and agent, had conducted that business for a time entirely for the benefit of his assignees, and had been living narrowly, exerting himself to the utmost, that he might after all pay twenty shillings in the pound. He had now achieved this, and from all who did not think it a bad precedent, his honorable exertions had won him due esteem, but in no part of the world is genteel visiting founded on esteem in the absence of suitable furniture and in the absence of suitable furniture and complete dinner service. Mrs. Vincy had never been at her ease with Mrs. Garth and frequently spoke of her as a woman who had had to work for her bread, meaning that Mrs. Garth had been a teacher before her marriage. In which case, an intimacy with Lindley Murray and Magnol's questions was something like a draper's discrimination of calico trademarks or a courier's acquaintance with foreign countries. No woman who was better off needed that sort of thing. And since Mary had been keeping Mr. Featherstone's house, Mrs. Vincy's want of liking for the Garths had been converted into something more positive. By alarm, lest Fred should engage himself to this plain girl, whose parents lived in such a small way. Fred, being aware of this, never spoke at home of his visits to Mrs. Garth, which had of late become more frequent, the increasing ardor of his affections for Mary inclining him the more towards those who belonged to her. Mr. Garth had a small office in the town, and to this Fred went with his request. 
He obtained it without much difficulty, for a large amount of painful experience had not sufficed to make Caleb Garth cautious, but his own affairs were distrustful of his fellow men when they had not proved themselves untrustworthy. And he had the highest opinion of Fred, was sure the lad would turn out well, an open, affectionate fellow with a good button to his character. You might trust him for anything. Such was Caleb's psychological argument. He was one of those rare men who were rigid to themselves and indulgent to others. He had a certain shame about his neighbor's errors and never spoke of them willingly. Hence, he was not likely to divert his mind from the best mode of hardening timber and other ingenious devices in order to preconceive these errors. If he had to blame anyone, it was necessary for him to move all the papers within his reach or describe various diagrams with his stick or make calculations with the odd money in his pocket before he could begin and he would rather do other men's work than find fault with their doing. I fear he was a bad disciplinarian. When Fred stated the circumstances of his debt, his wish to meet it without troubling his father, and the certainty that the money would be forthcoming so as to cause no one any inconvenience, Caleb pushed his spectacles upward, listened, looked into his favorite's clear young eyes, and believed him, not distinguishing confidence about the future from veracity about the past but he felt that it was an occasion for a friendly hint as to conduct, and that before giving his signature he must give a rather strong admonition. Accordingly, he took the paper and lowered his spectacles, measured the space at his command, reached his pen and examined it, dipped it into the ink and examined it again, then pushed the paper a little away from him, lifted up his spectacles again, showed a deepened depression in the outer angle of his bushy eyebrows, which gave his face a peculiar mildness, in these details for once, you would have learned to love them if you had known Caleb Garth, and said in a comfortable tone, It was a misfortune, eh? That breaking the horse's knees? And then these exchanges, they don't answer when you have cute jockeys to deal with. You'll be wiser another time, my boy. Whereupon Caleb drew down his spectacles and proceeded to write his signature with the care which he always gave to that performance, for whatever he did in the way of business, he did well. He contemplated the large, well-proportioned letters and final flourish, with his head a trifle on one side for an instant, then handed it to Fred, said, Goodbye, and returned forthwith to his absorption in a plan for Sir James Chetham's new farm buildings. Either because his interest in this work thrust the incident of the signature from his memory, or for some reason of which Caleb was more conscious, Mrs. Garth remained ignorant of the affair. Since it occurred, a change had come over Fred's sky, which altered his view of the distance, and was the reason why his Uncle Featherstone's present of money was of importance enough to make his color come and go, first with the too definite expectation, and afterwards with a proportionate disappointment. His failure in passing his examination had made his accumulation of college debts the more unpardonable by his father, and there had been an unprecedented storm at home. Mr. Vincey had sworn that if he had anything more of that sort to put up with, Fred should turn out and get his living how he could, and he had never yet quite recovered his good-humored tone to his son, who had especially enraged him by saying at this stage of things that he did not want to be a clergyman, and would rather not go on with that. Fred was conscious that he would have been yet more severely dealt with if his family, as well as himself, had not secretly regarded him as Mr. Featherstone's heir. That old gentleman's pride in him and apparent fondness for him serving in the stead of more exemplary conduct. Just as when a young nobleman steals jewelry, we call the act kleptomania. 
speak of it with a philosophical smile and never think of his being sent to the house of correction as if he were a ragged boy who had stolen turnips. In fact, tacit expectations of what would be done for him by Uncle Featherstone determined the angle at which most people viewed Fred Vincey in Middlemarch, and in his own consciousness, what Uncle Featherstone would do for him in an emergency, or what he would do simply as an incorporated luck, formed always an immeasurable depth of aerial perspective. But that present of banknotes once made was measurable, and being applied to the amount of the debt showed a deficit which had still to be filled up either by Fred's judgment or by luck in some other shape. For that little episode of the alleged borrowing in which he had made his father the agent in getting the Bulstrode certificate was a new reason against going to his father for money towards meeting his actual debt. Fred was keen enough to foresee that anger would confuse distinctions and that his denial of having borrowed expressly on the strength of his uncle's will would be taken as a falsehood. He had gone to his father and told him one vexatious affair, and he had left another untold. In such cases, the complete revelation always produces the impression of a previous duplicity. Now Fred piqued himself on keeping clear of lies and even fibs. He often shrugged his shoulders and made a significant grimace at what he called Rosamond's fibs. It is only brothers who can associate such ideas with the lovely girl. And rather than incur the accusation of falsehood, he would even incur some trouble and self-restraint. It was under strong inward pressure of this kind that Fred had taken the wise step of depositing the eighty pounds with his mother. It was a pity that he had not at once given them to Mr. Garth, but he meant to take the sum complete with another sixty, and with a view to this, he kept twenty pounds in his own pocket as a sort of seed corn which, planted by judgment and watered by luck, might yield more than threefold, a very poor rate of multiplication when the field is a young gentleman's infinite soul, with all the numerals at command. Fred was not a gambler. He had not that specific disease in which the suspension of the whole nervous energy on a chance or risk becomes as necessary as the dram to the drunkard. He had only the tendency to that diffusive form of gambling which has no alcoholic intensity, but is carried on with the healthiest child-fed blood, keeping up a joyous imaginative activity which fashions events according to desire and having no fears about its own weather only sees the advantage there must be to others in going aboard with it. Hopefulness has a pleasure in making a throw of any kind, because the prospect of success is certain, and only a more generous pleasure in offering as many as possible a share in the stake. Fred liked play, especially billiards, as he liked hunting or riding a steeplechase, and he only liked it the better because he wanted money and hoped to win. But the twenty pounds worth of seed corn had been planted in vain in the seductive green plot, all of it at least which had not been dispersed by the roadside, and Fred found himself close upon the term of payment with no money at command beyond the eighty pounds which he had deposited with his mother. The broken-winded horse which he rode represented a present which had been made to him a long while ago by his uncle Featherstone. His father always allowed him to keep a horse, Mr. Vincey's own habits making him regard this as a reasonable demand even for a son who's rather exasperating. This horse, then, was Fred's property, and in his anxiety to meet the imminent bill, he determined to sacrifice a possession without which life would certainly be worth little. He made the resolution with a sense of heroism, heroism forced on him by the dread of breaking his word to Mr. Garth, by his love for Mary and awe of her opinion. He would start for Houndsley Horse Fair, which was to be held the next morning, and simply sell his horse, bringing back the money by coat, well, 
the horse would hardly fetch more than thirty pounds, and there was no knowing what might happen. It would be folly to bulk himself of luck beforehand. It was a hundred to one that some good chance would fall in his way. The longer he thought of it, the less possible it seemed that he should not have a good chance, and the less reasonable that he should not equip himself with the powder and shot for bringing it down. He would ride to Hounsley with Bainbridge and with Horrock, the vet, and without asking them anything expressly, he should virtually get the benefit of their opinion. Before he set out, Fred got the eighty pounds from his mother. Most of those who saw Fred riding out of Middlemarch in company with Bainbridge and Horrock, on his way, of course, to Hounsley Horse Fair, thought that young Vincy was pleasure-seeking as usual, and but for an unwanted consciousness of grave matters on hand, he himself would have had a sense of dissipation and of doing what might be expected of a gay young fellow. Considering that Fred was not at all coarse, that he rather looked down on the manners and speech of young men who had not been to the university, and that he had written stanza as pastoral and unvoluptuous as his flute-playing, his attraction towards Bainbridge and Horrock was an interesting fact which even the love of horseflesh would not wholly account for without that mysterious influence of naming which determinates so much of mortal choice. Under any other name than pleasure, the society of Messieurs Bainbridge and Horrock must certainly have been regarded as monotonous, and to arrive with them at Hounsley in a drizzling afternoon to get down at the Red Lion in a street shaded with coal dust and dine in a room furnished with a dirt-enameled map of the county, a bad portrait of an anonymous horse in a stable, His Majesty George the Fourth, with legs and cravat and various leaden spittoons might have seemed a hard business, but for the sustaining power of nomenclature which determined that the pursuit of these things was gay. In Mr. Horrock there was certainly an apparent unfathomableness which offered play to the imagination. Costume, at a glance, gave him a thrilling association with horses, enough to specify the hat-brim, which took the slightest upward angle just to escape the suspicion of bending downwards. Nature had given him a face which, by dint of Mongolian eyes and a nose, mouth, and chin seeming to follow his hat-brim in a moderate inclination upward, gave the effect of a subdued, unchangeable, skeptical smile of all expressions the most tyrannous over a susceptible mind, and, when accompanied by adequate silence, likely to create the reputation of an invincible understanding, an infinite fund of humor, too dry to flow, and probably in a state of immovable crust, and a critical judgment which, if you could ever be fortunate enough to know it, would be the thing and no other. It is a physiognomy seen in all vocations, but perhaps it has never been more powerful over the youth of England than in a judge of horses. Mr. Horrock, at a question from Fred about his horse's fetlock, turned sideways in his saddle and watched the horse's action for the space of three minutes, then turned forward, twitched his own bridle, and remained silent with the profile neither more nor less skeptical than it had been. The part thus played in dialogue by Mr. Horrock was terribly effective. A mixture of passions was excited in Fred, a mad desire to thrash Horrock's opinion into utterance, restrained by anxiety to retain the advantage of his friendship. There was always the chance that Horrock might say something quite invaluable at the right moment. Mr. Bainbridge had more open manners and appeared to give forth his ideas without economy. He was loud, robust, and was sometimes spoken of as being given to indulgence, chiefly in swearing, drinking, and beating his wife. Some people who had lost by him called him a vicious man, but he regarded horse-dealing as the finest of the arts, and might have argued plausibly that it had nothing to do with morality. He was undeniably a prosperous man, 
bore his drinking better than others bore their moderation and, on the whole, flourished like the green bay tree. But his range of conversation was limited, and like the fine old tune, drops of brandy, gave you after a while of sense of returning upon itself in a way that might make weak hands dizzy. But a slight infusion of Mr. Bainbridge was felt to give tone and character to several circles in Middlemarch, and he was a distinguished figure in the bar and billiard room at the Green Dragon. He knew some anecdotes about the heroes of the turf, and various clever tricks of marquises and viscounts which seemed to prove that blood asserted its preeminence even among Blacklake. But the minute retentiveness of his memory was chiefly shown about the horses he had himself bought and sold. The number of miles they would trot to in no time without turning a hair being, after the lapse of years, still a subject of passionate asseveration, in which he would assist the imagination of his hearers by solemnly swearing that they never saw anything like it. In short, Mr. Bainbridge was a man of pleasure and a gay companion. Fred was subtle and did not tell his friends that he was going to Houndsley bent on selling his horse. He wished to get indirectly at their genuine opinion of its value, not being aware that a genuine opinion was the last thing likely to be extracted from such eminent critics. It was not Mr. Bainbridge's weakness to be a gratuitous flatterer. He had never before been so struck with the fact that this unfortunate bay was a roarer to a degree which required the roundest word for perdition to give you any idea of it. You made a bad hand at swapping when you went to anybody but me, Vincy. Why, you never threw your leg across a finer horse than that chestnut, and you gave him for this brute. He sent him cantering, he goes on like twenty sawyers. I never heard but one worse roar in my life, and that was a roan. Belonged to Pegwell, the corn factor. He used to drive him in his gig seven years ago, and wanted me to take him. But I said, thank you, Peg, I don't deal in wind instruments. That was what I said. It went the round of the country, that joke did. But what the hell? The horse was a penny trumpet to that roar of yours. Why, you said just now his was worse than mine, said Fred, more irritable than usual. I said a lie then, said Mr. Bainbridge emphatically. There wasn't a penny to choose between them. Fred spurred his horse and they trotted on a little way. When they slackened again, Mr. Bainbridge said, Not but what the roan was a better trotter than yours. I'm quite satisfied with his paces, I know, said Fred required all the consciousness of being in gay company to support him. I say his trot is an uncommonly clean one, eh, Horrock? Mr. Horrock looked before him with as complete a neutrality as if he had been a portrait by a great master. Fred gave up the fallacious hope of getting a genuine opinion. He saw that Bainbridge's depreciation and Horrock's silence were both virtually encouraging and indicating that they thought better of the horse than they chose to say. That very evening indeed, before the fair had set in, Fred thought he saw a favorable opening for disposing advantageously of his horse, but an opening which made him congratulate himself on his foresight in bringing with him his eighty pounds. A young farmer, acquainted with Mr. Bainbridge, came into the Red Lion and entered into conversation about parting with a hunter, which he introduced at once as Diamond, implying that it was a public character. For himself, he only wanted a useful hack which would draw upon occasion, being about to marry and to give up hunting. The hunter was a friend's stable at some little distance. There was still time for gentlemen to see it before dark. The friend's stable had to be reached through a back street where you might as easily have been poisoned without expensive drugs as in any grim street of that insanitary period. Fred was not fortified against disgust by brandy as his companions were, but the hope of having at last seen the horse that would enable him to make money was exhilarating enough to lead him over the same ground again the first thing in the morning. He felt sure that if he did not come to a bargain with the farmer, 
Bainbridge would, for the stress of circumstances, Fred felt, was sharpening his acuteness and endowing him with all the constructive power of suspicion. Bainbridge had run down Diamond in a way that he never would have done, the horse being a friend's. He had not thought of buying it. Everyone who looked at the animal, even Horrock, was evidently impressed with its merit. It could all the advantage of being with men of this sort, you must know how to draw your inferences, and not be a spoon who takes things literally. The color of the horse was a dappled gray, and Fred happened to know that Lord Mendelcock's man was on the lookout for just such a horse. After all his running down, Bainbridge let it out over the course of an evening, when the farmer was absent, that he had seen worse horses go for eighty pounds. Of course, he contradicted himself twenty times over, but when you know what is likely to be true, you can test a man's admissions. And Fred could not but reckon his own judgment of a horse as worth something. The farmer had paused over Fred's respectable, though broken-winded steed long enough to show that he thought it worth consideration, and it seemed probable that he would take it, with five and twenty pounds in addition, as the equivalent of diamond. In that case, Fred, when he had parted with his new horse for at least eighty pounds, would be fifty-five pounds in pocket by the transaction, and would have a hundred and thirty-five pounds towards meeting the bill, so that his deficit temporarily thrown on Mr. Garth would at the utmost be twenty-five pounds. By the time he was hurrying on his clothes in the morning, he saw so clearly the importance of not losing this rare chance, that if Bainbrick and Horrock had both dissuaded him, he would not have been deluded into a direct interpretation of their purpose. He would have been aware that those deep hands held something else than a young fellow's interest. With regard to horses, distrust was your only clue. But skepticism, as we know, can never be thoroughly applied, else life would come to a standstill. Something we must believe in and do, and whatever that something may be called, it is virtually our own judgment, even when it seems like the most slavish reliance on another. Fred believed in the excellence of his bargain, and even before the fair had well set in, had got possession of the dappled grey, with the price of his old horse and thirty pounds in addition, only five pounds more than he had expected to give. But he felt a little worried and wearied, perhaps with mental debate, and without waiting for the further gaieties of the horse fair, he set out alone on his fourteen miles journey, meaning to take it very quietly and keep his horse fresh. Chapter 24 I'm sorry to say that only the third day after the propitious events at Hounsley, Fred Vincy had fallen into worse spirits than he had known in his life before. Not that he had been disappointed as to the possible market for his horse, but that before the bargain could be concluded with Lord Mendelcott's man, this diamond, in which hope to the amount of eighty pounds had been invested, had, without the slightest warning, exhibited in the stable a most vicious energy in kicking, had just missed killing the groom and it ended in laming himself severely by catching his leg in a rope that overhung the stable board. There was no more redress for this than for the discovery of bad temper after marriage, which, of course, old companions were aware of before the ceremony. For some reason or other, Fred had none of his usual elasticity under this stroke of ill fortune. He was simply aware that he had only fifty pounds, that there was no chance of his getting any more at present, and that the bill for a hundred and sixty would be presented in five days. Even if he had applied to his father on the plea that Mr. Garth should be saved from loss, Fred felt smartingly that his father would angrily refuse to rescue Mr. Garth from the consequence of what he would call encouraging extravagance and deceit. He was so utterly downcast that he could frame no other project than to go straight to Mr. Garth and tell him the sad truth, carrying with him the fifty pounds and getting that sum at least safely out of his hands. His father, being at the warehouse, 
did not yet know of the accident. When he did, he would storm about the vicious brute being brought into his stable, and before meeting that lesser annoyance, Fred wanted to get away with all his courage to face the greater. He took his father's nag, for he had made up his mind that when he had told Mr. Garth, he would ride to Stone Court and confess all to Mary. In fact, it is probable that but for Mary's existence and Fred's love for her, his conscience would have been much less active, both in previously urging the dead on his thought and impelling him not to spare himself after his usual fashion by deferring an unpleasant task, but to act as directly and simply as he could. Even much stronger mortals than Fred Vincy hold half their rectitude in the mind of the being they love best. The theater of all my actions is fallen, said an antique personage when his chief friend was dead, and they are fortunate who get a theater where the audience demands their best. Certainly, it would have made a considerable difference to Fred at that time if Mary Garth had had no decided notions as to what was admirable in character. Mr. Garth was not at the office, and Fred rode on to his house, which was a little way outside the town, a homely place with an orchard in front of it, a rambling, old-fashioned, half-timbered building, which before the town had spread had been a farmhouse, but was now surrounded with the private gardens of the townsmen. We get the fonder of our houses if they have a physiognomy of their own, as our friends have. The Garth family, which was a rather large one, for Mary had four brothers and one sister, were very fond of their old house, from which all the best furniture had long been sold. Fred liked it too, knowing it by heart, even to the attic which smelt deliciously of apples and quinces, and until today he had never come to it without pleasant expectations but his heart beat uneasily now with the sense that he should probably have to make his confession before Mrs. Garth, of whom he was rather more in awe than of her husband. Not that she was inclined to sarcasm and to impulsive sallies, as Mary was. In her present matronly age, at least, Mrs. Garth never committed herself by over-hasty speech, having, as she said, borne the yoke in her youth and learned self-control. She had that rare sense which discerns what is unalterable and submits to it without murmuring. Adoring her husband's virtues, she had very early made up her mind to his incapacity of minding his own interests, and had met the consequences cheerfully. She had been magnanimous enough to renounce all pride in teapots or children's frilling, and had never poured any pathetic confidences into the ears of her feminine neighbors concerning Mr. Garth's want of prudence, and the sums he might have had if he had been like other men. Hence, these fair neighbors thought her either proud or eccentric, and sometimes spoke of her to their husbands as your fine Mrs. Garth. She was not without her criticism of them in return, being more accurately instructed than most matrons in Middlemarch, and where is the blameless woman? Apt to be a little severe towards her own sex, which in her opinion was framed to be entirely subordinate. On the other hand, she was disproportionately indulgent towards the failings of men and was often heard to say that these were natural. Also, it must be admitted that Mrs. Garth was a trifle too emphatic in her resistance to what she held to be follies. The passage from governess into housewife had wrought itself a little too strongly into her consciousness, and she rarely forgot that while her grammar and accent were above the town standard, she wore a plain cap, cooked the family dinner, and darned all the stockings. She had sometimes taken pupils, in a peripatetic fashion, making them follow her about in the kitchen with their book or slate. She thought it good for them to see that she could make an excellent lather while she corrected their blunders without looking. That a woman with her sleeves tucked up above her elbows might know all about the subjunctive mood or the torrid zone, that, in short, she might possess education, 
and other good things ending in shun, and were they to be pronounced emphatically without being a useless doll. When she made remarks to this edifying effect, she had a firm little frown on her brow, which yet did not hinder her face from looking benevolent, and her words which came forth like a procession were uttered in a fervid, agreeable contralto. Certainly, the exemplary Mrs. Garth had her droll aspects, but her character sustained her oddities, as a very fine wine sustains a flavor of skin. Towards Fred Vincy, she had a motherly feeling, and had always been disposed to excuse his errors, though she would probably not have excused Mary for engaging herself to him, her daughter being included in that more rigorous judgment which she applied to her own sex. But this very fact of her exceptional indulgence towards him made it the harder to Fred that he must now inevitably sink in her opinion, and the circumstances of his visit turned out to be still more unpleasant than he had expected, for Caleb Garth had gone out early to look at some repairs not far off. Mrs. Garth, at certain hours, was always in the kitchen, and this morning she was carrying on several occupations at once there, making her pies at the well-scoured deal table on one side of that airy room, observing Sally's movements at the oven and dough tub through an open door, and giving lessons to her youngest boy and girl, who were standing opposite to her at the table with their books and slates before them. A tub and a clothes horse at the other end of the kitchen indicated an intermittent wash of small things also going on. Mrs. Garth, with her sleeves turned above her elbows, deftly handling her pastry, applying her rolling pin and giving ornamental pinches, while she expounded with grammatical fervor what were the right views about the concord of verbs and pronouns with nouns of multitude or signifying many, was a sight agreeably amusing. She was of the same curly-haired, square-faced type as Mary, but handsomer, with more delicacy of feature, a pale skin, a solid matronly figure, and a remarkable firmness of glance. In her snowy frilled cap, she reminded one of that delightful Frenchwoman whom we have all seen marketing, basket on arm. Looking at the mother, you might hope that the daughter would become like her, which is a prospective advantage equal to a dowry, the mother too often standing behind the daughter like a malignant prophecy, such as I am, she will shortly be. Now let us go through that once more, said Mrs. Garth, pinching an apple puff which seemed to distract Ben an energetic young male with a heavy brow, from due attention to the lesson. Not without regard to the import of the word as conveying unity or plurality of idea. Tell me again what that means, Ben. Mrs. Garth, like more celebrated educators, had her favorite ancient paths, and in a general wreck of society would have tried to hold her Lindley Murray above the waves. Oh, it means you must think what you mean, said Ben, rather peevishly. I hate grammar. What's the use of it? to teach you to speak and write correctly so that you can be understood, said Mrs. Garth with severe precision. So would you like to speak as old Job does? Yes, said Ben stoutly. It's funnier. He says, yo goo. That's just as good as you go. But, but he says a ship's in the garden instead of a sheep, said Letty with an air of superiority. You might think he meant to ship off the sea. No, you mightn't, if you weren't silly, said Ben. How could a ship off the sea come there? These things belong only to pronunciation, which is the least part of grammar, said Mrs. Garth. That apple peel is to be eat by the pigs, Ben. If you eat it, I must give them your piece of pasty. Job has only to speak about very plain things. How do you think you would write or speak about anything more difficult if you knew no more of grammar than he does? You would use wrong words and put words in the wrong places. And instead of making people understand you, 
they would turn away from you as a tiresome person. What would you do then? I shouldn't care. I should leave off, said Ben, with a sense that this was an agreeable issue where grammar was concerned. I see you're getting tired and stupid, Ben, said Mrs. Garth, accustomed to these obstructive arguments from her male offspring. Having finished her pies, she moved towards the clothes horse and said, Come here and tell me the story I told you on Wednesday about Cincinnatus. I know. He was a farmer, said Ben. Now, Ben, he was a Roman. Let me tell, said Letty, using her elbow contentiously. You silly thing. He was a Roman farmer and he was plowing. Yes, but before that, that didn't come first. People wanted him, said Letty. Well, but you must say what sort of man he was first, insisted Ben. He was a wise man like my father, and that made the people want his advice. And he was a brave man and could fight, and so could my father. Couldn't he, mother? Now, Ben, let me tell the story straight on as mother told it us, said Letty, frowning. Please, mother, tell Ben not to speak. Letty, I'm ashamed of you, said her mother, wringing out the caps from the tub. When your brother began, you ought to have waited to see if he could not tell the story. How rude you look, pushing and frowning, as if you wanted to conquer with your elbows. Cincinnatus, I'm sure, would have been sorry to see his daughter behave so. Mrs. Garth delivered this awful sentence with much majesty of enunciation, and Letty felt that between repressed volubility and general disesteem, that of the Romans inclusive, life was already a painful affair. Now, Ben. Well, oh, well, why, there was a great deal of fighting, and they were all blockheads, and I can't tell it just how you told it, but they wanted a man to be captain and king and everything. Dictator now, said Letty, with injured looks, and not without a wish to make her mother repent. Very well, dictator, said Ben contemptuously, but that isn't a good word. He didn't tell them to write on slate. Come, come, Ben, you're not so ignorant as that said Mrs. Garth, carefully serious. Hark, there's a knock at the door. Run, Letty, and open it. The knock was Fred's, and when Letty said that her father was not in yet, but that her mother was in the kitchen, Fred had no alternative. He could not depart from his usual practice of going to see Mrs. Garth in the kitchen if she happened to be at work there. He put his arm round Letty's neck silently and led her into the kitchen without his usual jokes and caresses. Mrs. Garth was surprised to see Fred at this hour. But surprise was not a feeling that she was given to express, and she only said, quietly continuing her work, You, Fred, so early in the day, you look quite pale. Has anything happened? I want to speak to Mr. Garth, said Fred, not yet ready to say more. And to you also, he added, after a little pause, for he had no doubt that Mrs. Garth knew everything about the bill, and he must in the end speak of it before her, if not to her solely. Caleb will be in again in a few minutes, said Mrs. Garth imagined some trouble between Fred and his father. He's sure not to be long, because he has some work at his desk that must be done this morning. Do you mind staying with me while I finish my matters here? But we needn't go on about Cincinnatus, need we? said Ben, who had taken Fred's whip out of his hand and was trying its efficiency on the cat. No, go out now. But put that whip down. How very mean of you to whip poor old tortoise. Pray, take the whip from him, Fred. Come, old boy, give it me said Fred, putting out his hand. Will you let me ride on your horse today? said Ben, rendering up the whip with an air of not being obliged to do it. Not today. Another time. I'm not riding my own horse. Shall you see Mary today? 
Yes, I think so, said Fred with an unpleasant twinge. Tell her to come home soon and play at forfeits and make fun. Enough, enough, Ben, run away, said Mrs. Garth, seeing that Fred was teased. Are Letty and Ben your only pupils now, Mrs. Garth? said Fred, when the children were gone and it was needful to say something that would pass the time. He was not yet sure whether he should wait for Mr. Garth or use any good opportunity in conversation to confess to Mrs. Garth herself, give her the money, and ride away. One. Only one. Fanny Hackbutt comes at half-past eleven. I'm not getting a great income now, said Mrs. Garth, smiling. I'm at a low ebb with pupils, but I've saved my little purse for Alfred's premium. I have ninety-two pounds. Can go to Mr. Hammer's now. He is just at the right age. This does not lead well towards the news that Mr. Garth was on the brink of losing ninety-two pounds and more. Fred was silent. Young gentlemen who go to college are rather more costly than that, Mrs. Garth innocently continued, pulling out the edging on a cap border, and Caleb thinks that Alfred will turn out a distinguished engineer. He wants to give the boy a good chance. There he is. I hear him coming in. We will go to him in the parlor, shall we? When they entered the parlor, Caleb had thrown down his hat and was seated at his desk. What? Fred, my boy, he said in a tone of mild surprise, holding his pen still undipped. You are here betimes. But missing the usual expression of cheerful greeting in Fred's face, he immediately added, Is there anything up at home? Anything the matter? Yes, Mr. Garth, I am come to tell something that I am afraid will give you a bad opinion of me. I'm come to tell you and Mrs. Garth that I can't keep my word. I can't find the money to meet the bill after all. I've been unfortunate. I've only got these 50 pounds towards the 160. While Fred was speaking, he had taken out the notes and laid them on the desk before Mr. Garth. He had burst forth at once with the plain fact, feeling boyishly miserable and without verbal resources. Mrs. Garth was mutely astonished and looked at her husband for an explanation. Caleb blushed and, after a little pause, said, Oh, I didn't tell you, Susan. I put my name to a bill for Fred. It was for a hundred and sixty pounds. He made sure he could meet it himself. There was an evident change in Mrs. Garth's face, but it was like a change below the surface of water which remained smooth. She fixed her eyes on Fred, saying, I suppose you've asked your father for the rest of the money and he has refused you. No, said Fred, biting his lip and speaking with more difficulty but I know it will be of no use to ask him, and unless it were of use, I should not like to mention Mr. Garth's name in the matter. It is come at an unfortunate time, said Caleb, in his hesitating way, looking down at the notes and nervously fingering the paper. Christmas upon us, I'm rather hard up just now. You see, I have to cut out everything like a tailor with short measure. What can we do, Susan? I shall want every farthing we have in the bank. It's a hundred and ten pounds, said Deuce, take it. I must give you the ninety-two pounds that I've put by for Alfred's premium, said Mrs. Garth, bravely and decisively, though a nice ear might have discerned a slight tremor in some of the words, and I have no doubt that Mary has twenty pounds saved from her salary by this time. She will advance it. Mrs. Garth had not again looked at Fred, and was not in the least calculating what words she should use to cut him the most effectively. Like the eccentric woman she was, she was at present absorbed in considering what was to be done, I did not fancy that the end could be better achieved by bitter remarks or explosions, but she had made Fred feel for the first time something like the tooth of remorse. Curiously enough, his pain in the affair beforehand had consisted almost entirely in the sense that he must seem dishonorable and sink in the opinion of the Garths. 
He had not occupied himself with the inconvenience and possible injury that, the, that his breach might occasion them. For this exercise of the imagination on other people's needs is not common with hopeful young gentlemen. Indeed, we are most of us brought up in the notion that the highest motive for not doing a wrong is something irrespective of the beings who would suffer the wrong. But at this moment, he suddenly saw himself as a pitiful rascal who was robbing two women of their savings. I shall certainly pay it all, Mrs. Garth. Ultimately, he stammered out. Yes, ultimately, said Mrs. Garth, who, having a special dislike to fine words on ugly occasions, could not now repress an epigram. The boys cannot well be apprenticed, ultimately. They should be apprenticed at fifteen. She had never been so little inclined to make excuses for Fred. I was the most in the wrong, Susan, said Caleb. Fred made sure of finding the money, but I'd no business to be fingering bills. Suppose you've looked all round and tried all honest means, he added, fixing his merciful gray eyes on Fred. Caleb was too delicate to specify Mr. Featherstone. Yes, I've tried everything. I really have. I should have had a hundred and thirty pounds ready, but for a misfortune with the horse which I was about to sell. My uncle had given me eighty pounds, and I had paid away thirty with my old horse in order to get another which I was going to sell for eighty or more. I meant to go without a horse, but now it has turned out vicious and lamed itself. I wish I and the horses too had been at the devil before I had brought this on you. There's no one else I care so much for. You and Mrs. Garth have always been so kind to me. However, it's no use saying that. You will always think me a rascal now. Fred turned and hurried out of the room, conscious that he was getting rather womanish and feeling confusedly that his being sorry was not of much use to the Garths. They could see him mount and quickly pass through the gate. I'm disappointed in Fred Vincy, said Mrs. Garth. I would not have believed beforehand that he would have drawn you into his debts. I knew he was extravagant, but I did not think that he would be so mean as to hang his risks on his oldest friend, who could the least afford to lose. I was a fool, Susan. That you were, said the wife, nodding and smiling. But I should not have gone to publish it in the marketplace. Why should you keep things? Why should you keep such things from me? It is just so with your buttons. You let them burst off without telling me and go out with your wristband hanging. If I had only known, I might have been ready with some better plan. You're sadly cut up, I know, Susan, said Caleb, looking feelingly at her. I can't abide your losing the money you've scraped together for Alfred. It is very well that I had scraped it together, and it is you who will have to suffer, for you must teach the boy yourself. You must give up your bad habits. Some men take to drinking, and you have taken to working without pay. You must indulge yourself a little less in that, and you must write over to Mary and ask the child what money she has. Caleb had pushed his chair back and was leaning forward, shaking his head slowly and fitting his fingertips together with much nicety. Poor Mary, he said. Susan, he went on in a lower tone. I'm afraid she may be fond of Fred. Oh, no. She always laughs at him, and it is not likely to think of her in any way than a brotherly way. Caleb made no rejoinder, but presently lowered his spectacles, drew up his chair to the desk and said, Deuce, take the bill. I wish it was at Hanover. These things are a sad interruption to business. The first part of this speech comprised his whole store of maledictory expression and was uttered with a slight snarl easy to imagine. But it would be difficult to convey to those who had never heard him utter the word business, the peculiar tone of fervid veneration, of religious regard, in which he wrapped it as a consecrated symbol is wrapped in its gold-fringed linen. Caleb Garth often shook his head in meditation on the value the indispensable might of that myriad-headed, myriad-handed labor by which the social body is fed, clothed, and housed. 
It had laid hold of his imagination and boyhood. The echoes of the great hammer where roof or keel were a-making, the signal shouts of the workmen, the roar of the furnace, the thunder and plash of the engine, were a sublime music to him. The felling and lading of timber and the huge trunk vibrating star-like in the distance along the highway, the crane at work on the wharf, the piled-up produce and warehouses, the precision and variety of muscular effort wherever exact work had to be turned out. All these sights of his youth had acted on him as poetry without the aid of the poets, had made a philosophy for him without the aid of philosophers, a religion without the aid of theology. His early ambition had been to have as effective a share as possible in this sublime labor, which was peculiarly dignified by him with the name of business. And though he had only been a short time under a surveyor and had been chiefly his own teacher, he knew more of land, building, and mining than most of the special men in the county. His classification of human employments were rather crude and, like the categories of more celebrated men, would not be acceptable in these advanced times. He divided them into business, politics, preaching, learning, and amusement. He had nothing to say against the last four, but he regarded them as a reverential pagan regarded other gods than his own. In the same way, he thought very well of all ranks, but he would not himself have liked to be of any rank in which he had not such close contact with business as to get often honorably decorated with marks of dust and mortar, the damp of the engine, or the sweet soil of the woods and fields. Though he had never regarded himself as other than an orthodox Christian, and would argue on prenevient grace if the subject was proposed to him, I think his virtual divinities were good practical schemes, accurate work, and the faithful completion of undertakings. His prince of darkness was a slack workman. But this was no spirit of denial in Caleb, and the world seemed so wondrous to him that he was ready to accept any number of systems, like any number of firmaments, if they did not obviously interfere with the best land drainage, solid building, correct measuring, and judicious boring, or coal. In fact, he had a reverential soul with strong, practical intelligence. But he could not manage finance. He knew values well, but he had no keenness of imagination for monetary results in the shape of profit and loss. And having ascertained this to his cost, he determined to give up all forms of his beloved business, which required that talent. He gave himself up entirely to the many kinds of work which he could do without handling capital, and was one of those precious men within his own district, whom everybody would choose to work for them because he did his work well, charged very little, and often declined to charge at all. It is no wonder, then, that the Garths were poor and lived in a small way. However, they did not mind it.